Hey, what's going on, good people? It's Gardner Douglas, the Oyster Ninja. I'm here with uh, this familiar face. It should be for you. Um, Mr. Chris Sherman from Island Creek Oysters. Man, this guy is the CEO, the president, CDO, CEO. Very, it's just, it means very important person to the oyster industry. What's going on, Chris? How you feel? Hey, Gardner. Thanks for having me on, man. Feeling good. For sure, man. So let, let's just introduce Island Creek Oysters. Uh, no, you know what? Let's let's back up. Introduce yourself, man. Can do. Uh, so I'm Chris Sherman. I, uh, as as you said, I'm CEO of Island Creek. Guilty as charged, and um, I've been working here in the oyster business for the last 13 years, uh, since I was in my early 20s, and I work. I'm lucky enough to work in the community where I was born and raised. And uh, I got to know a guy named Skip Bennett, who founded Island Creek and started farming really here. Uh, one of the first farmers in Massachusetts back in the late 80s, early 90s. And I knew Skip growing up. He was older than me, but uh, I ran a little business in town. And some of my friends were some of his first employees. And But I used to borrow tools from him and use his ice machine for uh, icing down my beer in high school. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and it just kind of was a thing. And then I went away and I worked in the maritime trades and I was a professional sailor and ended up needing a job that would keep me on the water, uh, but in one place. And I couldn't think of a better place than Duxbury. And fortunately, Skip had started to get a little bit of traction with the farm and he had a sizable crop and um, starting, you know, the beginnings of making a name for Island Creek in Boston and New York. So I kind of let him do the hard work for the first, you know, 15 years or so. And then I jumped on the bandwagon. That was uh, nice right of you. <laughs> <laughs> that was real nice. So yeah, go ahead and get it started and, you know, up and running where it's just, I just got to slide in here. Exactly. <laughs> what's a professional sailor, man? Like, what's that like? Yeah, so I, I built boats, so I built like super yachts and um, and that type of thing, kind of in different places around the world. But then I sailed on on yachts also. So anything from racing to private yacht crew, uh, always on sailboats for me, never on motorboats. And um, yeah, it was a good gig for sure. But uh, then 2008 happened, and you know the stock market crashed, and a lot of the uh, the whole yachting industry kind of got rocked. So I needed, uh, I needed a new, a new job. <laughs> right. Right. So, um, income Island Creek oysters. So let, let's just, all right, let's uh, go back to the beginning of Island Creek. How did, uh, so what was the beginning of Island, Island Creek like in, uh, just the area, um, Massachusetts, you know? Yeah. So, you know, Oddly enough, Skip, you know, Skip grew up here like I did. Skip's family's been here for generations and generations. And his dad was a lobsterman and he grew up, um, you know, as a wild harvest shell fisherman uh, on the bay through high school and college. And then uh, he wanted to come back, <clears throat> excuse me, to Duxbury uh, after he graduated from college and give it one or two more summers on the bay, <clears throat> you know, harvesting mussels and clams and that type of thing. and. Uh, and had heard about uh, ARC, you know, down in, which is one of the first hatcheries, you know, in the Northeast here down uh, on the Cape and went and bought some clam seed actually, and put it out in Duxbury Bay and, um, 
and just to kind of see what happened. I think he was looking to, you know, he decided to kind of commit himself to life on the water, you know, and, and I think he, he figured he would just be, you know, poor for the rest of his life and be a, a, a water nut. And, uh, but he knew even back then that he needed something a little more stable than depending on the wild stock here in Duxbury, which is one small bay and one storm could come through and wipe it out, you know, and we've seen that with bay scallops and with mussels over the years. So that's why he kind of got into aquaculture. In a lot of ways, um, because of the, Duxbury is kind of a strange little place, even for, you know, Cape Cod and Massachusetts, uh, the prevailing breeze is, you know, it comes out of the Southwest and blows a lot of surface water out into Cape Cod Bay. We have a barrier beach. It's really a unique little um, system. So for Skip to uh, essentially fail at clams first and then switch to oysters was really prescient. Um, I think that Skip's got an incredible instinct and green thumb, you know, called blue thumb for oysters. And um, so I, I like to think that something told them that oysters would work, but ultimately it's like kind of being the first person to stroll into, you know, Napa Valley and throw a grapevine in the ground. Uh, it's just an incredible place to grow oysters. And, uh, and really the, you know, the rest is history with, that was the difficult part. The environment does a lot of the work. And, uh, and then we've just tried to make some good decisions over the years about uh, how to run the business around it. So uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, the, the Duxbury's uh, terroir? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, like I was saying, there's a barrier beach and you have this, this kind of this bay behind it. Uh, and if you look at Duxbury without any orientation or knowing what you're looking at, like if you took a snapshot of Google Maps and you, and you, just, and you just look down on it, you'd think it was a warm brackish estuary, right? With you know, kind of, uh, you know, lower salinity water, warm, you know, there's not a lot of um, freshwater influence. Um, when in fact, because of a number of factors, uh, it's this super cold uh, and, you, you know, almost full ocean salinity water. So uh, you've got a little cut through Duxbury Beach in between Duxbury and Plymouth Beach, where all this uh, incredible tide swing, you know, it's a 12 foot tide that comes twice a day through that little cut. So it creates this incredible kind of current, which is really the engine for growth for shellfish and certainly for our oysters. You know, it's the uh, conveyor belt of little microalgae that the oysters love to eat twice a day. So you have, they can grow kind of robust, but then you have this incredible flavor that gets imparted on them by the type of food that they're eating, but also being in this protected bay uh, in water that is like 33, 34 parts per thousand uh, salinity. Um, and also water that is, is really cold. You know, I think the best thing that kind of indicates the difference is if you point directly east from Duxbury Bay, uh, 17 miles across is Wellfleet, uh, kind of the tip of the Cape, obviously another, I don't know if you guys have heard of Wellfleet, but they grow oysters there too. <laughs> and, uh, and on a hot summer day, uh, Wellfleet Harbor kind of catches that southwesterly and the water piles up. Uh, you know, if you, if you think of the Cape, like shaped like your arm, well fleets the hand catching that Southwesterly that's blowing across from your shoulder. So on that day, uh, in say July or August, Wellfleet could be 85 degrees Fahrenheit, you know, even 90 degrees Fahrenheit in the Harbor. And that's really good for oysters and it's good for spawning. You know, they, they have a huge wild set in Wellfleet in Duxbury on that same day, 
uh, the water might only get up to 73, 74, 75 degrees. So you have, it sounds like a small difference, but physiologically for an oyster, it's a massive difference. Um, so much so that oysters don't spawn naturally here in Duxbury. All the oysters we grow are, are from seed. Uh, we really don't have any sort of wild set to speak of. Um, but that, you can imagine what that does to the flavor uh, and to the terroir of the oyster. They're kind of vastly different. And um, you, you think about microclimates in wine and things like that. And I think some of the marine microclimates that we see, particularly in an Appalachian like Massachusetts, uh, there's even starker differences, say, than growing grapes on a valley versus, you know, up on a plateau or something like that. So um, really just a dynamic environment and um, couldn't ask for a better place to, uh, you know, to grow these things. It really sounds like a, a oyster lover's haven because you got Wellfleet on one side, Island Creek on the other, and two, basically two different flavor profiles. Um you know, if you're really paying attention to the to the oysters, true flavor, uh, which is what I try and teach to you know everybody I come across. Uh, now, I got introduced to Island Creek oysters. I would say back in 2015, and the oysters that I was shucking back then, compared to the oysters that I see now, uh, are totally different. Mm -hmm. um, Back then, it was like this gnarly shell with a hook. And at first, I did not like the shuck. I'm going to be honest. I didn't like the shuck. The meat quality was perfect. But the actual shell, I was like, oh, my gosh. You know, but I, I learned to deal with it. But so can you just what, what, what happened over the years? Yeah, it's a good question. I, you know, I don't even know if I have a like the best answer for it, um, but I have some ideas because I agree there's you know the oysters definitely shift you know year over year in all of these um occasions like you look at the Rappahannocks you know you look at the Wellfleets like they do they, they change I see a lot of oysters right I've been buying and selling uh oysters through our distribution company now for you know 10-12 years and um it's incredible to see the shifts I often wish I had done a better job of like doc of like taking pictures and documenting it but um but one of the things that um is, is I think of crucial importance to the industry here in the Northeast is one of the things that I think is, uh, you know, you can attribute some of those differences to, and that's the seed genetics. Uh, you know, so there's just a few hatcheries that exist here in New England. Um, there are restrictive regulations on moving seed from state to state. So ultimately growers are, you know, they only have so many choices of where they can buy their oyster seed. Um, and the crazy thing to think about is, you know, over uh, a 10 or 15 year period, we've seen exponential growth in the number of farms, you know, literally going from just a handful of farms to hundreds, you know, and uh, during that same period, we've seen uh, the addition in the Northeast of just one commercial scale hatchery. Uh, and that's not even a big one. And that's ours. Uh, so you're getting seed from, uh, you know, the seed supply is, is, is tough and it's a, it's a, it's a piece of vulnerability for the industry. Um, but the, the last piece of it is that a lot of the hatcheries don't have uh, like a, a sophisticated selective breeding program. They're certainly not doing genomics and things like that. Uh, that if A, if you look at other sectors in agriculture, uh, we're like in the stone age compared to other farmers who, who kind of raise livestock on land or certainly, um, you know, crop growers. 
And then the other piece of it is, even if you look down at like the Mid-Atlantic, um, you know, some of the work that's happened at VIMS and then now has been privatized and commercialized by some of the bigger hatcheries in Virginia, for instance, uh, they have real genetic lines that they've kept up and tracked performance and tried to breed in disease resistance and things like that. Um, and so obviously there's these factors that you select for, but ultimately those factors and the, the selection over time uh, ends up giving you a different phenotype, right? Like a different look to the oyster, different shell shape, meat consistency, that type of thing. So I would pin a lot of the differences on, on that, but, but then also, um, you know, we've made some changes to how we grow them over the years, for sure. Um, the Island Creeks are still all bottom planted, but our nursery process is a little different. Um, you know, environmental conditions shift. So we have to change the way that we grow, you know, the size at which we're planting them, things like that. Um, so there's a few variables at play, but I would, I would hold genetics up as probably the, the biggest, um, but very good observation, Gardner. I'm, I'm impressed with your eye for oh, the- Oh, for sure, man. Right Honestly, man, like I said, and I want to say you're, dang, man, I don't want to get in trouble, man. But, <laughs> because, so- Let's do it. <laughs> so I eat oysters, right? I eat oysters, but I don't really eat oysters. Yeah. Is, is what I'm saying. So if I come across a new oysters that, I, that I've never shucked, um, I'll eat it. Um, so I'm able to talk about the oyster and tell people about the flavor profile. Um, but- I would say your Island Creek was one of the first oysters that I actually enjoyed eating. <laughs> Glad to hear it. As far as like flavor profile, texture, um, the way it broke down. And of course, like I said, it was like a nice deep cup. Um, so it was a nice piece of meat too. Yeah. Um, but the chef, uh, I think he threw it in the oven for a little bit and like not all the way. It was really just warmed up and I didn't think I was going to like it. Like a warmed up oyster with you know, but it was delicious. It was absolutely delicious. And um, that's how I fell in love with Island Creek. That's my love story. Yeah, um, <laughs> uh, those warm moisture preps, I feel like people are doing more of these days. And I, I love them. I think it's delicious. You know, it's not quite, you know, especially for our oysters, which are not huge, right? They're not a, a Gulf or even a Chesapeake oyster. They can be pretty petite. Mm -hmm. You know, you throw them under the salamander or whatever, and they get roasted up pretty quick and kind of like they shrivel, you know? Yeah. Uh, but whereas those nice warm preps is like brings out some of the flavors, you know, yeah. and they add yep. things into it. Uh, but you still have that nice full meat and the liquor inside the shell. So mm -hmm. I'm a huge fan of that also. So uh, let's talk a little bit of your um, your farm practices. Like what goes into uh, growing your oyster? I know you said um, you, you guys do the bottom. Um uh, was it Rex? So we do, um, so we have, well, we grow three different types now. Okay. Uh, so the Island Creeks are kind of the core, you know, product that we've got. And definitely the most of our seed goes to planting Island Creeks. And those <clears throat> have always been and, and likely will always be bottom grown. Um, so we grow them out in our nursery until they're about a half inch. So relatively small seed. And then we just broadcast them on the bottom of Duxbury Bay and the reason why we can do that is there's a very specific set of kind of substrate conditions, right? So you can't bottom plant when it's too muddy because the oysters kind of sink and suffocate in the mud. And you can't bottom plant when it's not, when it's too sandy because they get washed away with, you know, any sort of bad weather or current or things like that. They move all over the place. So we have this kind of unique situation where we have a, a layer of relatively firm sand. And then there's a tiny um, like top layer, like icing on a cake of, um, of silt. So the oysters have this nice little 
bed to just sit in and it's kind of perfect. And we also don't have a lot of natural predation on the oysters. That's the other thing. They're not protected obviously when they're on the bottom. And we do see lower yields off the bottom, um, but we don't have like diving ducks or, you know, or crabs or things that are kind of decimating our crop. Um, so, you know, the other thing we do is we grow the row 34s and the Aunt Dotties. The row 34s are grown on the Island Creek farm right beside the Island Creeks, but they're grown in gear for their whole life. So they're, they're grown in um, like a rack or a tray or like an open tray. Um, and then the Aunt Dotties are also grown in gear, but they're grown out um, <clears throat> at the end of the beach on a different farm location that's actually in Plymouth, um, a little village of Plymouth called Saquish. So uh, one thing that I'll say is that, um, you know, one of the things that makes Island Creeks unique is that they are bottom grown. And here in, especially in Massachusetts um, and really most of New England, that's pretty rare these days. Most, almost all growers are <clears throat> using some form of gear. And um, I think that there's upsides and downsides to both. We kind of hedge and obviously with the rows and the Aunt Dottie's, we do a little bit of each. Um, you get a more consistent oyster out of the gear. Um, you know, the, the shapes are more consistent, the shell density, the yield is much higher, right? You can put, you can put, you know, X amount of seed into a tray, you get 0.9 X out. Whereas with the bottom planting, we're lucky in a great, you know, fantastic year, we'll get 50% yield. Um, and most of the time it's more like 30 or 40. Um, but uh, I think that while it's less consistent, the, like an Island Creek, like a, like a, the best bottom grown oyster in my mind is the best oyster that you can possibly eat. It's just, it's got the nice robust shell, the meat texture, texture is a huge component of tasting for me. The meat, it's got this nice toothy bite to it, really th three dimensional flavor. You know, it's hard to beat, but there's more variation. The call's not as tight, you know, it's almost like a free range oyster. Whereas the row 34s and the Aunt Dottie's and all the other trade grown stuff is a lot more cookie cutter, right? You know what you're gonna get. The shells are a little more delicate, the meat's a little more delicate, the flavor's a little less nuanced, but you can get a bag of a hundred of them and you know, 95 of them are gonna be, you know, pretty damn close to uh, perfect. So uh, that's kind of my take on it. That's some of the husbandry practices that we use and, um, you know, just kind of messing around and still trial and error every day. Yeah, you kind of answered my question because I'm thinking if you got 50% um, yield, like, why wouldn't you just throw the rice? But at the end of the day, it's about the quality of the oyster um, that you're actually putting out, you know, to the world. Because that says everything about you, you know. You exactly. send your you send your kids out, and if they're disrespectful out there, man, that makes you like a bad parent, you know. I know the feeling. <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs> doubt, man. That's that's awesome though. Um, far as uh, uh salinity and flavor profile between the three types of oysters, could you break them down? Yeah, the so the island creeks are um <clears throat> so I think that the the best thing about the island creeks because we have this super cold salty water, but they're also in a bay kind of feasting on this kind of rich buffet of plankton. Uh, they have this incredible range of, of really high salt content, right? You get up front, you get this burst of full seawater uh, right from Duxbury Bay when you eat in Island Creek. And, but then on the back end, there's this incredibly sweet finish uh, and all these nice kind of mossy vegetally flavors in the, in the middle, depending on the season, um, which is what, that's why I think they've become so revered by, by chefs and, and now by people shucking at home. Um, so they're kind of, if, if that's the, our benchmark, right, the rows, because they're grown right on the farm, 
uh, next to the island creeks. They're very similar, obviously. Um, but what I always say is like a row 34 smells like an island creek. Like I always smell the oyster before I eat it just to get mm-hmm. the, 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 the flavor really going. And, um, and they smell identical. But then when you actually taste them, uh, the rows are a little more subtle and definitely more on the like um, chicken broth and mommy end of things nice. um, being up off the bottom. You know, and even if you look at their shells, the island creeks have this green algae growing on their shells and, and they usually have limpets and other things that are, you know, kind of uh, hangers on. And then the rows are cleaner, right? And they're, and they're, they're cream and brown color shell, um, you know, with some, it was a nice white in there, uh, but it tells a very different story and the flavor reflects that also. But again, subtle difference. The bigger difference is with the Aunt Dotties, because like I said, they're grown, you know, almost a mile away uh, on the other side of, you know, at the end of the beach in a really different environment. Like it's exposed to the Northeast in the winter. Um, the oysters are actually exposed more. They're like solid two hours, two and a half hours out of the water every day, you know, regardless of the, the tide cycle in the month. Um, so what you get there, again, not totally dissimilar from the Island Creek and the Road 34, but it's, it's, it's kind of like a more um, complex and there's like, it's not bitter, um, but there's a nice kind of like walnut oily kind of uh, note in there that I think, you know, makes it less of like the beginner oyster, you know, it's like a little more of like an advanced um, tasting oyster, but um, adds a lot of complexity and, uh, and, and, and interest I find. So um, a little more intense flavor overall in the Antotties. So between the three types of oysters, how many oysters do you guys have out in the, uh, the, the ocean now? That is a good question. I don't know if I can accurately <laughs> answer that. Like, we just, I mean, are we talking about millions, hundreds of thousands? Yeah, there's probably, um, you know, between two, like the market crop that we're harvesting and next year's seed crop, I've got to imagine there's probably something like 10 or 12 million oysters on our okay. farm, um, farms. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, all the farms in Duxbury, I would imagine there's probably 30, 40 million oysters uh, that are planted out into Duxbury Bay uh, every year. So they're doing their job cleaning up the bay and no uh, giving us, well, a livelihood and also something good to eat. So, <laughs> yeah. So um, what are some of the biggest changes you've seen in the oyster industry since you've been in uh, last 13 years with Island Creek? Oh, that's a good question. Epic change. So much change. Yeah. I mean, so the crazy thing to think about is like when I first started, we were, you know, the, the Skip and Christian Horn and Don Mary and some of the, the early like group of Island Creek growers, they had just started to kind of figure out the farming. They're having like a decent sized crop coming online every year. And, but we're not talking millions of oysters, you know, it was still, it's still relatively small potatoes, particularly by today's standards, but we didn't have a market to sell them into. Um, there, the demand for oysters, the number of the restaurants that had oyster lists was so much smaller than it is now that we were traveling to Hong Kong and France and all over the place, trying to just make sure we had enough outlets to move the volume that we were producing. Whereas now, uh, I mean, it's been years since we've even come close to having enough supply to meet demand. And that's partially due to the brand recognition for Island Creek and, um, also due to just the overall uh, kind of insane growth and in demand for oysters, the number of restaurant accounts that list them. I mean, we, we used to sell direct to, you know, 20, 30 restaurants uh, and now we sell to almost a thousand. 
uh, in 40 something states, you know, we're talking, you know, that's, it's just been nuts. So um, that's been a big change. And then the other, the other thing that's changed is the, like where those markets are, right? It used to be, we'd only try to sell stuff in oyster towns, right? So New York, Boston, uh, Seattle, San Francisco, like, you know, towns that had a more of a history of oyster culture, Chicago also, I should say, they're not all coastal. Uh, and, and always those were big urban hubs with, you know, pretty sophisticated dining scenes. And, uh, you know, then we started it, to see it radiate out and it was Miami and it was, uh, you know, it was uh, Dallas and Houston. And it was like, kind of these other towns that you wouldn't necessarily think of as being big oyster towns. And then it radiated out again, where we were starting to sell to like Austin, Texas and Minneapolis. And, and then, and then once more, where all of a sudden, then it was the suburbs around those cities and like, and then it was random places, you know, uh, like a little town in Georgia and like, you know, Missouri and, um, you know, Idaho, we have accounts and ski mountains started buying them. And like, so that to me has been like the growth and demand for it. And then just the pervasiveness of, the appeal of sitting around eating a raw oyster uh, has really just totally uh, blown my hair back um, over the last 13 years. And I can't tell you how many times Skip and I sat around uh, and we sat around shore. Gregory used to work with us also. And we were like, when is it going to end? Like, we were like, this has got to be some sort of fad <laughs> or something. And we were literally prepared. We'd like make, we'd like stash, be trying to save money and like for like when it was all going to come crashing down. Yeah, <laughs> And that's the way I describe it to people. I was like, man, you know what? Oysters are trending right now. And I'm just going to ride this wave. And you <laughs> you just, every year going into the next year, I was like, well, you know, it's been a good run. So this was a good year. Yep. Let's see what <laughs> next year right? it, it just It just, it just gets bigger and bigger. And like, you know, I just feel like, honestly, I feel like I'm not going to deny it anymore. I'm just going to say, you know what? This is just the start of something beautiful. It's uh, so true. You know, literally in the beginning days of well you know what this this is this will take me into the next question how has climate change mm. affected the farm good question um has it do you see like what what are you seeing you know it's hard i guess it's hard to say right like that's the um the trick of it like on one hand absolutely you know um i do think that as farmers and people who run businesses that are generally subject to all kinds of crazy negative externalities that are out of our control. Um, I think that some of the climate change um, dialogue, right, is like kind of regular people who have, you know, maybe they work in insurance or real estate or something, and they all of a sudden are looking around and saying, wait a second, the weather and the climate can, and the natural environment around me can start having a negative impact on my livelihood and my property and everyone's freaking out and for us it's a little bit like welcome to the party <laughs> that's what we've dealt with every day uh every month you know there's some new a storm hits or uh you know the water gets too hot there's a disease event like you know something dies in the ecosystem and throws everything off so for us we're it's kind of like climate change is doing more of what we already have to do just to survive in the seafood business um but on the other hand coming off of like just last week or, you know, 10 days ago or so, we had just a ripper of a nor'easter that came through Duxbury and we had like a hundred and something trees down across wires and the farm was a mess and we didn't have power for four or five days. And um, 
that's one thing like these the intensity and frequency of these storms um you know it's been tough to deal with this this year we had like hurricane and tropical storm activity coming through up the coast in like early july you know which is just kind of in my experience you know unprecedented and then and it was not just one rogue storm it was a handful of them um so that's continually challenging our whole kind of value chain uh it just it's a lot of cost in having to deal with that um so that's one thing that i can point to for sure that feels like a climate related impact on the farm but also our whole kind of oyster business and um you know and it's it's a bummer definitely a bummer um you know because as far as um the trending of oysters i don't see any stop to that but when you talk about um, a good tropical storm or a tropical storm coming through and wiping a farm out, you know, especially like how it was down in the south and just, you know, that's a that's a that's a business. That's a farm. That's that's somebody's life that's just been destroyed um, due to, you know, the new uh, climate things that we got going on. So, you know, I'm always thinking about that also. Um Let's see, man, we've talked about a lot. We've talked about a lot. Is, is there anything I've left out? How about I ask you some questions, Gardner? Oh, snap. <laughs> oh, snap. Oh, it's always one. Go ahead, man. <laughs> um, okay, so I think from a, so from a shucker's perspective, Yeah. Uh, what's your favorite oyster to shuck? Why would you do that? <laughs> Just putting you on the spot. <laughs> now, you know I'm trying to get my podcast monetized. <laughs> And I'll tell you what, <laughs> you don't have to name any names, but tell me the favorite, your favorite broad type of oyster to shuck. No, um, like honestly, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not shy about this. Um, I got a bunch of oysters I like to shuck, man. Um, white stone is one of them. Beautiful. Um, I like that the nice hard shell, nice deep cup oyster. Um, ruby salts from the Eastern shore. Uh, I love those. It's a good oyster to shuck. It's a good tasting oyster. It reminds me of home. Nice briny, um, a good uh, mixture of the saltiness from the Atlantic Ocean, sweetness from the Chesapeake Bay. Um, I like that one. Um, Cushies. I love Cushies. I love to shuck those small cocktail size oysters and Cushy, Olympia, Kumamoto. I like all of those oysters um, to shuck and to eat, surprisingly. Uh, but you know, it's just also when I was working in the bar, I, I found a difference of what a few days can matter out of the water. So I did this event for Taylor, um, Taylor shellfish in DC, and he had the oysters overnight, uh, ship overnight ship. And I was like, these are amazing because I had tried Kumamoto's before wasn't my thing. Um, but that nice fresh oyster, I was like, oh my gosh. Like I I, I oh, saw yeah. what the hype was about. <laughs> yeah. It's a huge difference. Yeah. Um, I haven't shucked your oysters in a long time. Uh, like I said, since 2015, but I definitely it definitely got me going um on on my oyster journey because I, I really wasn't a fan of oysters. Um, but that's also it got me going um like tasting different oysters as far as flavor profile. Uh, and just, I was like, okay, all right. Every oyster doesn't taste the same. So that's why I try and teach the people now, um, 
you've had that oyster, but try this one, you know? That's it. I mean, it's funny you mentioned the white stones because I think I've always been a lo- like a big proponent of, I think that part of what keeps people coming back time and again and, and kind of like leaning in and digging deeper into this whole oyster culture thing mm-hmm. is the variety, right? Like there's so much, it's like, it's like wine or craft beer or something like that. Like it just, it's endless, you know, uh, your kind of oyster journey can be a lifelong thing. Yeah. Um, but I do, I see a lot of like, um, regionalism, you know what I mean? Where people are like, Oh, I only like oysters from Maine or I only like oysters from, you know, the Pacific Northwest. And, mm-hmm. uh, always try to encourage people to approach it like a wine list. You know what I mean? Like you wouldn't just drink, you know, uh, Gruner Veltliner all the time and be like, I just, I just drink Gruner. You know, it's like the beauty of it is you can branch out and taste all these different wines. And, you know, I sent, uh, we have this oyster of the month club that we do for like, like, um, customers on our website. And uh, yeah, I actually did want I did want to talk about that. I'm sorry, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so so it's a popular thing, right? And um, because they just arrived, which is pretty great. And uh, we try to do a variety. And we've what we found though is like a lot of people sign up because they want our oysters, they want stuff from New England. And we tried to like send the white stones, which I think are a beautiful, like gorgeous little oyster. Like they're so perfect and like cute as a button and they're they're good uh they taste really good but they're way different right like they're significantly lower salinity than a like an island creek or pemaquid or anything like that uh and a lot of our oyster of the month customers we got a lot of negative feedback about that and i was like this is a gorgeous oyster you know it'd be like taking a a different type of wine and like a beautiful example of that wine and being like oh it's bad wine it's like it's not bad wine it's different wow okay yeah um (laughs) So like that was, that's my like continual challenge is getting people to break through their kind of like regional, you know, like, uh, you know, affinity for the local oysters where they live uh, and to branch out and really, you know, and for oyster bars to get a good variety on there. There's not, you know, a lot of people have kind of entrenched in their own local stuff, which is not a bad thing, but right. missing out on something there. The weird thing is like when you just started talking, I, I just like I'm I'm going through more oysters now. It was a, a oyster from Damascata, I believe. Um, I think it was Barstool oysters. Um, I like those. And then it was some out of the Carolinas, um, Savage Inlet. Um, you know, it's really a lot of good oysters out here. That's the great thing about it. And I I know I'm forgetting a lot a lot more oysters, but um, oh, I got the little balls here. <laughs> Uh-oh. um but yeah uh it's just a lot of good oysters out here man and uh but yeah so how does that um the the uh oyster of the month work yeah so um we're actually changing it now where like you go on into the website and you just uh you sign up and we there's a whole like uh we tried to make it kind of like a farm share but um a there's variety and b we try to make it super easy right so it's not like you have to drive to us to come get it we'll ship it to you and then we have this kind of like concierge customer service that goes along with it where like if we have a lot of people who will ship it to they're going away for the weekend you know and and that's the weekend where their oyster of the month shipments coming they'll ship it to their friend's house where they're staying or to their airbnb or whatever um so that's a lot of fun um but basically we you know you sign up and uh you can sign up for a three-month increment or you can just sign up for uh um, you know, you can, you, <laughs> you can sign up for a three month increment, or you can just sign up and we'll just keep sending them and, and, you know, until you tell us to stop. So it's been popular. We got, um, 
yeah, at one point last year, we had like almost a thousand people. Uh, that wow, were that's beautiful, man. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Um, you want to talk a little bit about your caviar? Yeah, that's been a fun new caviar. And then um, tin fish conservas have been our two big um, kind of like new products that we pushed into. Caviar, we just found that, um, you know, there's a lot of great farms that were out there and starting in the U.S., you know, which is a relatively new phenomenon. Um, and they weren't necessarily getting repped. Like it was kind of like oysters used to be before this whole movement where it'd be like, oh, these are East Coast oysters or they're West Coast oysters, really kind of generic. And you wouldn't know the farmer and kind of how they're produced. We saw the same thing with caviar where you had a lot of people buying caviar and then slapping their brand on it. And you never really know, you know, there's a lot of question and kind of, you know, uneducation about, um, about caviar. So our whole mission has been to highlight those innovative new producers from here in North America and also to, to kind of bring in the best from overseas, but to be 100% transparent about the producers and also to educate people on not only the sustainability practices of those producers, but also just the basics of caviar, which is like, there are different species of sturgeon. You know, there's different grades of caviar. Uh, it can be really daunting for people. So we really just tried to break it down, make it simple, um, but also make it approachable and uh, most importantly, fun. Because if you're not having fun eating caviar, the- Exactly, the, what's the, what's the need for it? <laughs> so what kind of caviar are you carrying? Uh, so a couple of the farms we work with, Sterling um, Caviar in California. They're the, actually the first, one of the first I think the first uh, actual aquaculture caviar farm in the world. Um, so they're a big and established player. Um, they grow white sturgeon as the species. Uh, it's delicious. It's kind of, I call it like kind of the Kumamoto of caviar. It's, it's a crowd pleaser, right? Like there's not, you know, it's a great way to introduce people to caviar. It's got like big flavor, beautiful texture. Uh, there's just a lot going on. Um, and then we work with Marshallburg um, farms in North Carolina. Uh, they grow, there's the species of sturgeon they grow is Ocetra. Uh, it's a little bit of a higher grade caviar. It's uh, a much more subtle flavor profile, big, beautiful beads. Um, you know, that's a really nice product. Uh, we work with Adamus, which is an Italian producer. They're um, from over in Lombardy. Uh, and they grow a Siberian sturgeon. So yet another species. Uh, we're working with, on a trout row project with, um, with uh, Hudson Valley, fisheries up in um, New York State, uh, taking some of their sustainably raised trout uh, row and curing it. So we got a lot of fun things going on in the caviar packing room. But one thing to note is that we actually, a lot of people will buy caviar, put their brand on it. We actually buy original tins from these producers. We age it ourselves. And we do all the packing in-house, which gives us a level of control over the quality and the process that um, very few outlets actually have. It's really just the farms and a handful of, um, you know, reputable distributors that have that um, type of infrastructure and packing capacity. So that's kind of our value out there. Yeah, that's special, man. That's different. It's been fun. It's really just like a big excuse for, you know, me and some of the other people who work here to eat a lot of caviar. So <laughs> <laughs> what, about, what else uh, is, is Island Creek doing that uh, people really don't know about? Is there yeah. anything I'm missing out? No, I think that's it. It's like, well, we got our whole farm experience thing. So, you know, if you're ever up in, cool. you know, the Boston area, we're just 45 minutes outside the city and um, you can come tour the farm and we got an outdoor raw bar. We just, tonight actually, we're opening a, a restaurant um, right across the street, like an old 
you know, 19th century shipbuilders mansion that we bought, renovated, uh, and opened a restaurant in. So we're creating this whole little, um, you know, what we like to think is a shining example of a coastal community here in Duxbury that, that people can come down and, uh, and witness firsthand and, and, you know, have some fun, learn about aquaculture, uh, drink some good wine, eat some good oysters, that type of thing. So And kid friendly. Very kid friendly. I think <laughs> sometime in the summer, I think um, we're like the weekend childcare option for most of the greater Boston area. So there's like, there's hundreds of kids at the, at the farm every weekend. So uh, bring your kids along. Cool, sure. man. Any um any lasting uh uh idea to, to plant or seeds to plant in listeners' uh, mind? Yeah, that's a good question, Gardner. Hey, one of the one of the things that I um I guess this is for the other growers and, and people out there that might be listening is um you know we we have all benefited from uh this idea of kind of like brand and transparency and like hey, this is an island creek. This oyster is grown in Duxbury. Uh, it's bottom planted, you know, and it's kind of single origin, you know, what you're going to get. Um, and I think that no one's doing anything like irresponsible or unethical, but I think we've, as an industry, people have gotten a little crazy with brand names, right? Where you have like a bunch of people that are producing an oyster and they're selling it as like three or four different brands, you know, which is fine. But from my perspective, kind of undermines that connection to the grower, you know, but you can literally be on an oyster list. Uh, you know, at a raw bar somewhere and be eating two different oysters that have different names and they're coming from the same farm, uh, grown in the same way. And I think that for me is like one troubling trend I've seen. Um, and again, it's not, it's nothing in comparison to the rest of the food system. Uh, and it's, and it's nothing unethical. I just think it's a, not a great move for um, our industry to be, to get too cute with the, 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 the names and the, and the brands and things like that. I like that. <laughs> that's my, that's my, like, um, that's my soapbox speech for, uh, for all the listeners. <laughs> all right. Okay. Okay. Um, well, thank you guys for being such a uh, reliable brand over the years. Um, a reliable quality oyster. Uh, I really do appreciate that. Uh, where can the listeners, uh, you know, find your, your website, your social media, all that good stuff. Yeah. So it's islandcreekoysters.com. Um, we're on Instagram at Island Creek Oysters. Uh, yeah. And if you, you Google us, you can find us just about anywhere. And um, if you give us a ring, we can tell you which restaurants are listing our product. And, you know, we also do distribute oysters for a lot of the other farms, particularly here in New England. So uh, if you're looking for uh, a certain oyster from a certain small producer or whatever, um, always a good place to start here. We usually have a, a good track on it. So look us up and Definitely come visit Gardner. I'd love to have you up to the farm uh, if you get up to this area. So. I would love to make it. And now that I know that you guys are um, babysitters, you have babysitters also. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it makes it a little easier. Yeah, it's a combination of babysitting and just letting them run amok. So. That too. Yeah, no, that, that, that is a babysitter. That's, yeah. that's, the, that's the country babysitter. That's it. <laughs> no doubt, man. Appreciate you, okay? Gardner, thanks a lot, man. Thanks for doing the podcast, too. I'm a big fan, so I uh, appreciate you spreading the good word. Man, I love to hear that. All right, man. Well, good luck out there. Thanks for having me. All right.